Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to Grayson Milborn, who is the Security Intelligence Director for Open Text Security Solutions. And we're going to be talking to Grayson about a topic that we we don't often get into, but we definitely should talk about, and that is the threat landscape for individuals, families, and small and medium-sized businesses. But before we do that, we're going to say hi to Grayson. Grayson, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing really well. Thanks, Mark. Awesome. Hey, whereabouts are you located? Uh, I live in Louisville, Colorado. So if you're familiar with Colorado, that's about uh, 20 miles northwest of Denver. Wow, it's a beautiful area. I um, I drove through Colorado last Last year, actually, right about this time, my uh, one of my boys had a tryout with a new professional uh, soccer team up in the um, Fort Collins area. Oh, yeah. And we went through the entire state from south to north. And gosh, I just reminded what a beautiful state you're living in. <laughs> it really, it never gets old. And I, I'm lucky I was, I was born here, so I didn't really pick to live here, but uh, I certainly am not moving. <laughs> but yeah, the, <laughs> the, the, the beauty of this state is definitely uh, something that makes it special. Well, you know, funny, one more thing, it has nothing to do with cybersecurity, but I just um, read recently that some of the smaller cities in Colorado are starting to recycle their water because of obviously there's all across the country, we have issues with um, lower water supplies. And there were a couple of cities that are just saying, hey, we're going to do 100% recycling, as is like Las Vegas out in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Um, that's 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 pretty cool because it shows that you're you're at like the forefront of where we need to be going to kind of protect some of these resources. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I mean, a lot of waterfalls in Colorado that's then um, earmarked for other states. And so I think conservation needs to start at the source as well as along the way. And um, I think it's just something we need to brace for uh, in the future. So. Good to see that happening here. Excellent, makes a lot of sense. Hey, Grayson, um, your title is Security Intelligence Director. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> That's a common question. It's uh, not the most straightforward title, but uh, primarily what I do is I, I focus on product efficacy and, and ensuring that um, as threats change and as, as the landscape shifts, that the, our products are uh, capable of, of adapting. Um, so that, that's my primary role. Uh, but I've spent a lot of time uh, in cybersecurity. I've, I've almost 20 years in now, um, and I spent a lot of time uh, previously at WebRoot before the acquisition by OpenText uh, as the director of threat research and as an analyst, uh, malware analyst for many years before that. And um, so a long history of, of analysis that I've taken into uh, ensuring that the products are effective, but at the same time, I, I'm pretty passionate about thought leadership and uh, just informing people because, you know, the more you know, then the, the better you can manage the risk of, of a cybersecurity incident. Um, so whether that be uh, your personal environment, your home, your small family, or uh, small businesses, which in many cases on that smaller end of 20 uh, employees or so, operate kind of similar to how a, a home network uh, often will function. Um, so there's definitely some some interesting contrasts uh, that we have between uh, types of infections that we see at different levels. Um, so in any event, yeah, th- that's a, a long-winded answer for who I am, but uh, I think we have a really great topic for today. Well, no, I 100% agree that uh, awareness is like the first step or the first line of defense, and that should be, you know, everybody needs to be aware. And we'll we'll come back to that in terms of how you create awareness um, you know, enterprise-wide or amongst individuals and families. 
Um, and, but let me go back to, you know, you, you said you're responsible for product efficacy and, and I'm not sure if that means like product development and design as well. Yeah, so it's really, I, I spent a long time working on the threat research side of things, where as a researcher, we would see pivots in threat actor techniques that would sometimes uh, be outside of the capabilities of our product. Uh, and, and we would then manage this this life cycle. And it, this is something that's happened consistently throughout my tenure in cybersecurity is that uh, new evasive techniques are, are discovered and products have to adapt. Um, and so back uh, you know 15 years ago the, the the speed at which we were able to adapt was rather slow uh, and so through some and great technological advancements using the cloud we're able to react now in a much uh, a much more rapid way so really yeah it goes from the um, from the endpoints development to our cloud and backend services development uh, as well as the threat research process itself um, is sort of a living operation um, and so I help ensure that that uh, that operation runs smoothly. You know, it's interesting because in most industries, when you look at product and service development, uh, the the way that it occurs is typically, uh, you know, your sales team will go out to the market, the customers will say, hey, we want this feature, we need that feature or that function, et cetera. Or you look at the competition and see what they're doing. And in the cybersecurity space, it's kind of unique because what you said is, you're not actually looking directly at the competition or what customers are asking for. You're looking at what the the, the bad actors are doing, what the threat landscape looks like. What the and problem you're is. Working towards that. I'm yes. Sorry. It, it, yeah. Absolutely. It's like I look at what the problem we're trying to solve is, um, it, purely from the the threat actor's perspective of, of how they're trying to evade us. And of course, I actually compete with um, the other side of product management in, uh, in that traditional cycle of looking at our competition, looking at what our customers are wanting and prioritizing um, features that serve the customer from a convenience perspective. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm typically pulling on the rope the other way and saying, yes, these things are nice, but the real reason people buy this software is so that it protects and provides security. And if, if we fail at that, then you know, all of these other are nice to haves, but they all must rest upon the ability of the product to be effective. So I, I really help drive that mentality as well, which I'll tell you has <laughs> um, not always been uh, the most straightforward fight, but uh, it's certainly our, the ethos now that we uh, drive within the product. Yeah, I mean, product development is always a negotiation, and I, I'm sure it'd be really fascinating to sit in on some of those conversations where you know you, you, people who have the, the, the features requests versus what you think is necessary to, to meet that threat landscape. Um, yes. but yeah, <laughs> interesting is a, a, an ambiguous word there that can be interpreted many ways. But um, so let me ask you this. Let's let's talk about the threat landscape. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, we don't often talk about, you know, individuals and families. But at the end of the day, we are all, regardless of where we work, individuals and part of families. And, you know, the threat landscape should concern us. We need to be aware. What are you seeing in terms of the threat landscapes for individuals and families? Well, certainly, um, you know, what, one thing that's cool about our data is that we have telemetry that lets us divide and understand who is submitting information to our cloud. Uh, so we, we actually have great telemetry looking at exactly that, those statistics. And um, I think one of the things we see right off the bat is that, and maybe this isn't that surprising, but our, our home personal devices see across the board about twice as many infections as their uh, our business 
device counterparts. Um, and I think this is attributed one to uh, corporate issue devices typically have more layers of security, maybe higher grades of security. And those devices are primarily just used for doing your work. Um, and contrast that to our personal devices, which you know are in our home networks, um, you know, kids, all different ages, um, you know, security compliance and patching and our browsers up to date. And for all of these reasons, uh, as well as you know, people using it for their own their own personal reasons, uh, we, we, we see significantly higher infection rates there. Um, and this applies absolutely to ransomware as well. Um, and so we see ransomware not really talked about uh, in, in, in the media so much about individuals being compromised because well, let's face it, most ransomware actually doesn't make it onto the uh, <clears throat> onto the news unless it's some actual massive attack, which you know, while they do happen, um, represent a very small fraction of the overall uh, occurrence of these incidences. Um, you know, so so I think what I see is, you know, it's still definitely a, a problem and education, especially in the, in the household and just proper hygiene goes so far in preventing a really, you know, potentially catastrophic or devastating loss of personal um, and sometimes not replaceable data. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, that that's like a high level overview, I'd say of what I'm, I'm so, seeing. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned the, the devices and, and you kind of did that in the sense of traditional devices, devices, excuse me, um, you know, uh, iPads or PCs or, you know, MacBooks, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts about, you know, all the different IoT devices that are at home? It could be your refrigerator, your garage door opener and these kind of things. Is that something that's on your um, on your radar as well? Oh, definitely. Um, and, and I think this is one of the, you know, one of the frustrations around cybersecurity is that it's this constant tug of war with uh, convenience. And, you know, we see this with these IoT devices that, you know, the person who came up with the idea for you know, making something smarter often isn't thinking about how to do it in the most secure way to get it to market. They're thinking about how to how to feasibly do it at all. And, and security is most often a afterthought. And, and what happens is you have these IoT convenience-based devices that typically have an app component. So now you have something that's on your home network that also has an app that's on your phone. Um, and this is all of a sudden a lot of trust that you're handing over to um, you know who knows the vendor, right? I mean, if you look at the different IoT vendors out there, I mean, they're they're everywhere in the world, um, and so you know, for consumers, I think it's uh, an additional challenge to understand not just the device itself, but the risk factor that comes with the convenience. Um, and most people, I don't think, think about that that after the fact thought. And, and what can happen is that you know sometimes the app itself can be weak and uh, can be a foothold into your network. Um, sometimes uh, the device can be weak, um, and your data can be compromised, or you know, um, and, it could be an avenue for an infection. And 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 how are the uh, the bad guys doing this? Is it just like an email compromise type situation, or um, a lot of times it is. It's it's account takeovers, probably like the or you know account compromise, and then password reuse attacks. Um, you know they they'll a lot of people are still I I group this sort of into the cyber hygiene section of 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 just you know proper cybersecurity hygiene um, is not using the same password for every site. But convenience says that, oh man, that's a pain to have a different uh, password. And of course, there's password managers, but that's still a, like an extra level of effort. Uh, and what we unfortunately see is that a lot of people still just are happy to use one password across many sites. Um, and so, if one one weak IoT device uh, portal gets compromised and they were storing your data improperly, 
well, now all of a sudden that's one more leaked credential that's available on the internet. Um, so it puts you at more risk. Um, so that's certainly one way. Um, there have been lots of examples actually of the devices themselves being um, poor and uh, able to leak the passwords for the uh, networks that they have, have been set to uh, connect to. Um, now, as from a home user, this is maybe you know less of an avenue compared to the SMB space, um, where we've certainly seen examples of of uh, smart devices being the gateway for how initial access was achieved. Um, so, so um, imagine that you're talking to a a parent in a you know five, four or five person household, the, the two parents, um, a couple, two or three kids, mm -hmm. and of, of, let's just say, you know, teenagers, what's like the top one or two pieces of advice you would share with them to say, hey, this is what you definitely have to do to secure your household? Yeah, so I think, um, I think there's a couple of things. I'll, I'll continue on the cyber hygiene side of things first. And I think that that really includes making sure that when uh, the operating system or says to update that you do update. Now operating systems are you know the base level and all of your applications run upon that. So it's most critical that for, and especially on the mobile devices because we see a lot of zero-click exploits still continue to be discovered for both Android and iOS. Um, both platforms are pretty good at forcing users to update, but you know, staying current is really, really critical. Um, I did mention password hygiene. Uh, I think it's also really important that we keep our accounts secure because, uh, particularly your, your email account, your primary email account, um, if compromised, is sort of the the golden key that will allow an attacker to. Uh, to further his compromise or their compromise into all of your other accounts. Um, as we obviously see password resets come to your email. Um, and this is where two-factor authentication, I think, goes a long way. So, so make sure your email account password, if you if you do want to be lazy and, and only, you know, uh, not use a, a password manager or have unique passwords per site, uh, always ensure that your email password is unique to all others. Um, and then for financial accounts, use two-factor authentication. It's um, it's a small inconvenience for a lot of added security that uh, really can prevent um, even cred compromised credentials from uh, from from hurting you. So so that's like on the on the hygiene side of things. But I think from an IoT perspective, and and as we look towards the future. Um, there's going to be more IoT devices. We're going to see smart clothes. We're going to see uh, additional smart medical devices, and pretty much every appliance will want to communicate. Um, you know, from your light bulbs to your shades to your uh, <laughs> to your toaster, right? Um, everything has some sort of value in in that connectivity. Uh, and so, the way that your home network is configured, um, a lot of routers allow you to have two different uh, network bands. And so, typically, IoT devices run on the 2.4 gigahertz uh, uh, band. And, and so, you know, at least in my house, I've created a the IoT devices connect to this network, and all of my personal devices uh, connect to uh, my other network. Um, and so I at least have some network segmentation going on. Um, uh, that adds a little bit of additional security. I think that's some great advice, and and I think you touched on like for me would be the holy grail of the you know some kind of type of password hygiene, uh, whether that's a some type of keeper or password you know um, vault. Um, but then the the MFA is is huge, and I use even on non-critical accounts. I use MFA because I just don't want anybody getting access to any information, regardless, yep. you know, and 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 because that can be used in other ways, social engineering or 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 whatever. Um, and then I, you know, the whole uh, the uh, network segmentation again. That's that's 
Uh, how difficult is that for a home user to do? Uh, so I don't think it's terribly difficult. I mean, these things, okay, so I have Comcast and I've kind of watched how Comcast has evolved over time. Um, and again, this is using their router. And so you can buy commercial uh, uh, grade routers that that do the same functionality that, that basically broadcast on multiple um, SSIDs or they have multiple names uh, that you can connect to. Uh, and so for Comcast, for example, I have an app and I can go into the app and just literally type in the name and the password that I want and set it. Uh, and then it's really on that per IT device basis. Um, and so just, you know, it, it, it's really not that complicated. And, and I think people should not look at their routers as mysterious black boxes that project internet across the house um, because, the, you know, there is security within there um, and, and being familiar with which devices are connected. Um, so the other thing that you can do is set up, and, and when you connect a new device, you can name it. Um, and a lot of times the devices don't name themselves very uh, descriptively. And so you'll get some, you know, random code, uh, but you can rename that to, you know, the dishwasher or the, the dryer or whatever the device might be. Um, and then, you know, depending on the models, um, at least I know, again, the, the Comcast one allows me to set up alerts and notifications, and uh, I can create groups, and I can block internet from certain groups if I want. So, um, you know, perhaps if you have kids and you want them offline, <laughs> um, this right. is one way you can turn the internet off for their device specifically without actually disrupting, um, you know, the whole of your network. You, guys, you hear the collective groan from all the kids going, no. <laughs> right, right, right. I do not want, I don't want my parents to know how to do that. Hey, um, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I just glanced at my, uh, at, at my computer here and um, I looked up at the camera and I have this little uh, blocker that I have on there, the little security mm -hmm. blocker. And I, I'm just curious from where you sit, how often are how important are these or how important is it to block your camera when not in use and and how many how often does that happen where somebody's able to hack in and actually kind of watch you so that's really difficult to do. So here's the thing. Most cameras have a light that's um, coded to be on when the camera is on. Um, so that light is a really good indicator. And I did actually attend a, a conference presentation that looked at hacking that light. Um, and, and, and while they were able to do it, the steps were pretty significant. Um, mm -hmm. You know, is it possible? Yes. Is it practical? Uh, practical? Uh, probably not. Um, but that said, I mean, uh, I carry a little sticky note piece over my laptop when I'm when I'm traveling. Um, sure. the, the one here that at my desk uh, in my home office, um, you know, it's a higher quality one. It, it doesn't come with a slidey thing, and I um, I'm not going to put a sticky note over it. But I trust that um, when, when the light's on, um, it's on. Um, you know, I think, you know, like there's definitely you know reason I think to. Um, be mindful of how these settings work because I know by, for myself personally, I have a headset and I also have the um, the microphone uh, camera, and, and I will sometimes see apps um, inadvertently switch between them. And so, right. like all of a sudden, I'm not coming out of my headset mic and the the camera is recording me, <laughs> uh, my audio. Um, and so I think you know it's more of like an inconvenience. But from a cybersecurity perspective, I think. Uh, it, you know, we don't see it as often as I think the fear behind being secretly recorded, um, yeah, know, makes people that's, feel. That's kind of what I hear, but at the same time, I mean, these little blockers or a post-it cost practically nothing. Oh right? yeah, so absolutely. It's, it's kind of like <laughs> why you know, not? The, the risk to the reward is, you know, and I, the inconvenience I is tiny, right? It's like exactly right, hey, yeah. So let's uh, let's jump tracks a little bit. I mean, you know, let's go and and start talking a little bit about what you're seeing in the SMB space, and, and I know that. Uh, Open Tech Security uh, Solutions just published a, a 
SMB ransomware survey. Um, maybe you can touch uh, or talk yeah. a little bit about some of the key findings and then get into you know, what you're seeing is in terms of the threat landscape for SMBs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is kind of a cool survey. Um, it went out to uh, over 1,300 um, IT professionals uh, through a like of, of businesses of 1,000 employees or less. And so 1,000, um, I really look at the upper end of SMB, um, but the vast majority of these, uh, I think, I don't have the exact stats here, but but most of them are much smaller companies, more in like the 200 or less range. But um, what's interesting about it is, is just understanding you know how businesses are preparing for the economic times ahead and how that impacts um, their their spend on cybersecurity, um, and as well as just their encounters with ransomware. So so we'll start with just you know tightening budgets, and we we know that uh, with inflation and with you know rumors of recession that. Um, you know, businesses are really looking to uh, spend their dollars wisely, and and I would argue that wise spending still includes cybersecurity. But I think what we see is that uh, this is one of the things that you pay for that doesn't provide value, right? Like nothing happens, and that's the goal. Um, and so, for unfortunately, that often can lead it to a you know, it, this furthers the problem of oh, it's not I'm not a target. It's not going to happen to me. Um, you know, I'm I'm too small, um, which kind of fits into the next part of what we found in uh, in the survey is that um, you know uh, nearly half of respondents now have have had an experience with ransomware, 46%, which is a really high number, right? I mean, that's almost half of of 1,300 respondents. It, you know, have had an account an encounter. Um, and, well, when you say when you say an encounter, does that mean they received a suspicious email, or did they actually? No, no, they they had like a, a ransomware event where okay. at least okay. a system was in, infected. Now, I <clears throat> it, it didn't go granular to the point of saying were all of your systems like in, uh, compromised and did you have extended downtime from that? But other surveys have showed um, you know, the average downtime is around 24 days uh, for um, SMBs who get hit with ransomware. Um, and for a lot of them, that can be, um, I think something like 60% of them end up going out of business. So well, it, let me just stop you there. So yeah. um, if you put your advisor hat on, uh, you know, do you advise people, hey, pay the ransom, or how do you get, how do you back yourself out of a situation like that? Because so this I mean, is you're, really... you're faced with this existential crisis of, of yes. paying the bad guys or going out of business. I mean, what, yes. what, do you, what would you advise? Right, and and so I think it's a it's a difficult question, and I don't think there's a one answer fits all. Um, but knowing those numbers, I think, gives you some insight into um, why it's important to have a, a plan in place. Now, um, and I think one of the other problems here is that a lot of people do pay, right? And a lot of people I know even on this survey said that it didn't happen when it did um, and, and paid when they don't want anybody to know about it. Because, right. you know, like it's like, it's like a black eye, right? Like you don't want to go around broadcasting that, hey, my business got hit by ransomware and I paid the ransom, right? Uh, we, they want to brush that away. They don't want customers to know um, and, and they want to just move on with their business. And and so the, the bad side of that is that when it's not reported, it, it hurts um, the ability for attribution and to enable law enforcement to collect uh, forensics to, um, to help go after people, which which doesn't happen enough, and you know, we've seen we saw one actually last week on with a, a lockbit um, ransomware operator being arrested in Canada, um, and we, I don't know enough, but typically these are the lower affiliates who who end up getting um, caught in these these types of operations, um, you know. But I think back to um, 
the the the, the what the SMBs are looking at right now and and their their ability to kind of invest in security or their willingness to. Yeah, exactly. I I think I think it's important to to have a plan in place, right? And I think, you know, you can, if you, if you're, if you know what your assets are, and we're a big fan of what we call like cyber resilience in that um, it's, it's really just understanding what risks um, can impact your business or take it offline. Um, and certainly ransomware is one of those things, but we try to put it alongside like direct disaster recovery. And, um, you know, if you're, if your building got flooded and you lost all your servers, you know, could you bounce back? Um, so, so having a plan in place, I think, does make a lot of sense. Um, even if you're a really small business, um, you know, you don't have to spend a ton of money to do these things. Uh, and what we actually did find is that, you know, <laughs> the vast majority of SMBs are not spending a lot of money on cybersecurity. Um, less, like over 50% of them spend less than $20,000, which, you know, depending on the size of your business could be pretty significant, but on those, you know, larger SMBs, uh, that's a pretty small amount. Um, so, so let me ask you, um, you know, so I, I work for a company that's um, maybe 115 people. I do um, business development consulting, marketing consulting for them. And we we invest heavily in security. Uh, but we kind of spin that and turn turn security not as a cost center, but we look at it as security as an asset. And when we go out to the, the marketplace, we ask, because it's a, it's a software, software as a service uh, type solution, and we ask our uh, customers and our prospects, you know, how important is it for you to protect your data? How important is it for you to, um, you know, to ensure your the security of, you know, your your use of this platform? And for us, it's a key selling point. Having, you know, attained uh, different ISO certifications, being GDPR compliant, mm -hmm. and working towards SOC 2 compliance, those are all costs. But we we actually win business with having those in place versus our competition. Um, do you see many SMBs kind of spinning that a bit and saying, hey, you know what, it, it is a cost, but we can use this to to win more business? I, I like that idea, um, and I don't know that it's it's fully catching on, but I I I, I hope that is one of the, like the critical. Uh, shifts, I think, that will need to take place before this problem starts getting better. Um, and, and unfortunately, what I, we've seen over the last several years is that um, th this problem isn't going away, and, it, and it's it's moving down market, and it's you know it's, it's increasing the um, the reach um, of who is a target. Um, and so, you know, one of the other things that we we track is just the the, uh, the median size of a business who reports a ransomware attack, um, and that's down to one of the lowest since we started really tracking it, um, just above 100 endpoints um, or 100 devices in, uh, for a company uh, of an infection. So, you know, I think, you know, security is is in your posture is, is a selling point. Um, I think the one thing that's also helping push that um, in making that happen is cybersecurity insurance. Um, and as businesses look towards insurance as a a mitigation factor for they don't want to go out of business and so you know maybe have insurance for it um you know those insurances are going to look for um you know, proper cyber security defenses uh and, and in, in fact definitely decline or uh don't pay out claims where they find that there was inadequate or negligence going on within their cybersecurity practices well and and, and i've seen that actually um as well let me back up you know, where we kind of flip the story where, yeah, security is a cost, um, but if we invest in it, hey, we can we can use that to win more business. Or if we invest in it and or if we invest in it, 
we can reduce our premiums on our cyber insurance and our business operation insurance. And yeah. I, I have seen some insurance companies that say, hey, you know, if you achieve these credentials or these certifications, we'll give you a X percent uh, discount on your premiums. Yep. Yep. All makes sense. And I mean, if, if I achieved that, I would want to broadcast it. I mean, mm -hmm. I'd be proud of it, right? I mean, it should be something that businesses are um, encouraged to uh, take seriously and, um, yeah, I mean, make it a differentiator. Like, so, I, so yeah. with your, um, you know, your advisory hat on at Open Tech Security Solutions, and, and you're going in and talking to an SMB owner or the the executives of an SMB, what kind of conversation are you going to have? Yeah, I think it, it first starts off with understanding, you know, what are you doing now, and how confident are you in your ability uh, in your cyber resilience um, for various scenarios. And I think there's a, a couple of easy ways to kind of look at it. Um, I like the cyber resilience framework, um, which is sort of a living cycle. But it, you know, it starts with your ability to identify uh, your critical assets, your critical individuals. Um, so the identification stage doesn't really just—it's not just which PCs and where, uh, but it's who and, and how are they accessing them, and, and who has the right rights for uh, that type of access. Um, and then you, you have your protection layers, which is your layer defenses and having you know email protection, endpoint security, firewalls, and and, and backup. Um, but then you have your, your detection layer, which is you know layered security is great and it is an effective strategy. Um, but the reality is, is that, um, you know, it's not a bulletproof strategy and uh, mistakes can still be made, human errors. Um, and, and what we find is if you don't uh, evaluate your, your environments, um, <clears throat> you might not notice that an infection was present. Um, and in fact, this is, I think, is one of the bigger problems we see um, in, in just larger industry reports, like the Verizon Risk Report um, looks at this across enterprises and uh, <clears throat> they have this time to detection metric, which is really uncomfortable because they see in a, a lot of cases um, initial compromise took place months before uh, the compromise was discovered and and I think you know that's why it's important to to analyze your own environment and see <clears throat> is something going wrong and, and EDR solutions really I think thrive in this space uh, but sometimes are overkill for smaller businesses but um, you know, at least uh, having some uh, observations. Um, and then there's like the response stages. And I think response is one of the areas that's often overlooked in a cybersecurity readiness uh, or prep uh, preparedness uh, posture is that um, you might have a plan, but have you have you practiced your response? And, and having a response plan is, is really important for say, okay, we, we discovered that um, a user's, you know, trying to log in from an uh, unrecognized location and the, their login has failed 10 times. You know, okay, maybe we have a very easy plan in place to force that user to reset their password. Um, but maybe there's something more significant like a ransomware attack and, you know, all of a sudden all systems are offline. Um, I think having a fire drill for some of these plans goes a long way to ensure that a step that you might have missed or a system you might have missed um, is accounted for because especially with a ransomware attack um, time is of the essence and, and the attackers also leverage that and will increase the ransom demand typically by twice um, within the first 24 hours if you don't comply um, and so you know having a plan in place can allow you to uh, a practice route plan in place can go uh, prevent uh, or at least you know minimize the amount of impact that uh, a incidents or an incident might cause you 
Um, and then the last one I like to always include is education. I think education needs to be part of all of these steps, right? If, if an employee makes a mistake that leads to an infection, um, that's an opportunity to, to learn from that, um, as well as proactively educating people through um, simulation-based attacks, uh, which you know, we find to be very effective. But um, you know, if you, you mimic literally real-world attacks, but in a simulation fashion, and you can see that you know, especially the C-suite. Th these are the people who are often targeted with these types of uh, phishing emails. Um, and a lot of times they also, um, you know, can have the opinion that, uh, you know, they're smart or they, they, you know, too smart to fall for it. Um, and so, you know, very well-crafted uh, simulations um, can at least highlight it uh, internally and catch somebody and, and maybe raise their awareness um, to prevent a, a future-based attack. So I know that's a long-winded answer there, but I think you know these are all things to think about. Um, you know, when I talk to an SMB leadership or an executive board, um, you know, I, I talk about each of these steps and, and, and try to get a feel for um, you know their awareness of that step and what it entails and and you know how well they're doing at uh, you, you know you adhering know, to those principles. Yeah, that is a lot, and we, you know, we've just been talking for a couple of minutes here on that specific topic, and I'm sure if you're having a sit-down conversation, you know, the conversation is going to last a lot longer and go a lot deeper in a lot of different directions. But already, even with just that initial response, if I put my uh, SMB owner hat on, I'm like, oh my gosh, I, how are we going to do all this stuff? Um, and we don't have the in-house expertise. Um, and according to your survey, 50% um, of SMBs spend less than $20,000 $20, per year. And I'm like, how are we going to, on $20,000 a year, how are we going to do all this stuff? And and I don't, I just want to focus on my business, you know? Mm -hmm. And so in, in, in that situation, I'm assuming that you would talk about some type of managed service or some type of hybrid solution. Yeah, I think uh, for a lot of SMBs, it makes sense. Uh, again, depending on your size, right? Now, if, you, if you're a 20-person business, um, it probably makes sense to, to hire out an MSP um, and have them take care of your security for you. Um, and there's a lot of competition in the SMB or MSP space, and so a lot of these vendors um, are one-stop shops for, for all of your uh, network security and orchestration needs. Um, and so I think that's a good place to go. But I think once you get to around 50 employees, maybe up to 100, um, now it's, I think, time to have at least some dedicated staff that are focused so that you have, like, when you have an internal employee versus a managed service, you, ju you just have more control. Um, you know, there's not, uh, there's one less layer basically, right, for you to um, make changes or uh, integrate with your your cybersecurity aspirations. And then in the scenario where you do have, you know, one or two in-house people, how do you work with them to make sure like, you know, you want to have that plan in place, you want to have the right security posture, you want to have the right training program. Um, you know, there's still going to outsource part of it, whether it's a service or buying the technology or buying yes. the, the consults, consulting services. You know, I mean, what do you go in and, and, and how do you support them? Well, so we have solutions. Um, I, I think zero trust is another um, uh, security philosophy that's gaining a lot of traction. Um, and we, it, it kind of goes in hand with uh, a cyber resilience um, you know, framework, right? They're, they're minimizing risk. Um, and so what we do is we, we have solutions that help support that, right? And um, 
you know, we don't cover everything, but uh, we have a pretty good end to end from, uh, and, and this is really open text vision of, of creating their uh, security solutions branch of, of their business. Um, <clears throat> but with the acquisitions uh, over the past several years, uh, we, we really have end to end uh, security components in place. And so whether that's email, whether that's endpoint, whether that's um, DNS protection, security awareness training, um, backup, um, all of these apply both to consumers and SMBs. Um, so, you know, we have a really great, um, you know, mix and, and uh, so, so that's our, our our contribution. But you know, I mean, I I'm not really the sales guy. Um, I I I understand like what what we do, and I I always find the threat side very fascinating. Um, and, and you know, I'm privileged to I think work in uh, in a way that makes our products more effective. So it makes me feel good that our uh, you know we're out there trying to make the world a better place, and we recognize that there's others alongside us, and um, so. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, education is where I really like to thrive and, and being on podcasts like this and, and really just talking about the problem and, and some of the easier steps to uh, drive awareness of it. Because again, like the more you know up front, the less of a headache that these, these things will turn into. Um, and in many cases, you can navigate around them entirely. Awesome. And then in terms of the, the threat landscape, is, is it going to just stay the same over the next couple of years or do you see any new... <laughs> killer apps for the bad guys coming out that oh wow here we go game changers yeah so unfortunately i don't see things getting better yet and i think there's several reasons for it one is that the world is continuously becoming more and more of a software driven environment and every business regardless of how big you are almost every one of them has a website or some uh, customer portal and collects uh, data about a customer and that data is valuable and it will continue to be valuable and so uh, that, you know, that's not going away. Um, the, the fact that we are now all a digital world means the opportunities for vulnerabilities in software um, continues to grow. And, and when we look at uh, disclosed vulnerabilities or CVEs over the past decade, um, nearly every year has twice as many discovered as the year before. Um, and this is being fueled in a, in a lot of ways, unfortunately. And, and, Sadly, one of the smallest ways is through white hat certified ethical hackers discovering vulnerabilities and and disclosing them. Um, you know, we see some bug bounty programs, but uh, bug bounties really honestly don't pay enough for the value of some of the bugs that are discovered. Um, where you know a hacker could find a, a zero day Chrome exploit and and Google will pay you a hundred thousand dollars for it, but they then go sell it to the black market for ten times that, um, or to a nation state for. 50 times that, right? And so you have nation states and hacking groups um, also looking for a, a, their own arsenal of these vulnerabilities. And, and so we've seen some very devastating ones, even in this past year, uh, we had the log4j vulnerability, which you know impacts like an uncountable number of web apps. Um, and, and most of the major ones, you know, have been patched, but uh, there, there's, you know, that thing's gonna be around for for years and years to come. And so every year we're going to find something like this, unfortunately. And and I think you know not until security is uh, you know is baked in from the very beginning across all software development are we going to start making a real meaningful impact. Um, and I think the other challenge I'll I'll leave with this one is that attribution and consequence for participation um, is still not uh, is still not accurate, right? Like it's a it's a uh, you don't see very many people getting arrested. These uh, networks are very difficult to disrupt. And, and so the opportunity and the amount of money being made um, creates 
Pretty strong um, incentive, yeah. A pretty um, strong incentive, right? And so, yeah. you know, these are all the ingredients that are going into this problem. And so something has to shift um, for it to really start changing. One of my uh, recent guests was talking about how there's, you know, cybercrime as a service. So you can go on oh, the yeah. dark web and you can buy these exploits, uh, password breakers, what, whatever you're looking to do. There's You can get it out there in this kind of pretty much open marketplace, right? Which is kind of crazy, right? Yes. You think that there would be a way that we could shut we being law enforcement or uh, you know, a consortium of law, uh, law enforcement agencies across the country, across the world, could shut these actors down, but they just pop back up, you know, on, on another yep. site. And yep. uh, it's uh, it's it's like you said, it's kind of the the incentive versus the potential punishment ratio is way out of whack at this point. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's it. Cybercrime as a service is um, <clears throat> n nothing really new. Um, I, I began being fascinated by it back over 10 years ago and, and just watching, um, you know, these forums emerge and, and gain users and credibility and um, and really it's just evolved and, and ransomware as a service is really where we see most ransomware occurs is that <clears throat> for, you know, not a lot amount of money, um, you can buy remote access to a system. Um, and so, you know, somebody's already fished those credentials, um, you know, businesses already using, uh, you know, open to the internet RDP and, and now you can just log in <clears throat> and then for a very small amount of money, again, um, there's a lot of different ransomware as a service vendors out there who, uh, we'll just take a small percentage of what you extract in ransom payment um, as their fee. I shouldn't say it's a small percent, it's about 30%, <clears throat> and they typically scale based on how many endpoints you infect. So, you know, if you infect a thousand or more, uh, they'll take 20%. Um, but you know the 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 barrier the the tech you know tech, you know just a little bit too much about this stuff. <laughs> I'm I'm supposed to know. <laughs> I, somebody has to go and follow them. I'm not like I <laughs> I sometimes wonder like did I make the right side of you know? But no, I have like I've always been really passionate about making the world a, a better, happier, safer place. Yeah. And so I I fight on this side. Um. Even though I I see just you know, unfortunate amounts of money being extracted from little businesses and then going out of business is just, you know, it's a bad thing. And so, um, yeah, no, I totally <laughs> agree with you. And uh, we got to fight a good fight. Hey, let me ask you um, if if anybody listening could be could be uh, owner of a SMB, it could be the security guy in the SMB or gal. Um, it could be anybody just but they want to kind of keep abreast of this, the evolution of the threat landscape. Um, what resources do you recommend? I mean, where do you sure. get, how, how do you stay up to date? So I, I say, well, I, I, there's a lot. I spend a lot of time each day actually reading um, just to stay afloat because there is so many different, so many different things going on. So it can absolutely be overwhelming. But one of the great resources that uh, that's emerged over the past couple of years is CISA. Um, and this is like CISA, but they call it CISA, right? Um, and, and that's the, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Command uh, of the United States government. And, and they've done a really fantastic job of, of many things. One is they put out frequent bulletins of new techniques of things that they, uh, that's hot on their radar. Uh, and so they have the benefit of being an aggregator of, of of compromise, right? So they they work with the FBI when there are certain businesses that have been breached that have reached out to law enforcement to help them uh, understand what's what their actions are. Um, and this is why it's also important for uh, for disclosure to take place. And I know um, 
you know, this has been kind of a sticky issue and, and, and like at least companies now who work in uh, industrial control uh, have to report these things, but attribution is really important. So CISA does a good job of, of attributing um, and, and helping to go after these people, as well as providing regular updates uh, as to um, new vulnerabilities, right? Because vulnerabilities happen all the time now. And so, uh, you know, we see them in, in varying scale, but, you know, Microsoft Exchange earlier this year uh, had a really bad vulnerability that allowed remote code execution. Um, so much to the point that the FBI actually proactively started patching environments that they found that were vulnerable. So um, it was almost like the FBI was hacking into your environment just to apply the patches and then leaving. Um, so, so it's a good resource just to be aware of what's going on. Um, uh, so I would start with that one if you can only pick one. Some great advice, and it's funny you bring up the FBI because they were recently in the news for some other stuff um, regarding the procurement of spyware. I don't know if you saw that article. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, I actually I did. Yes, I, I, this is the one where they're using the Russian, uh, yeah, third-party source code um, that ties back to like Russian, a Russian firm. Is that right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yes, and, 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 and using it in an application that probably isn't yeah. compliant legal at this point but uh <laughs> well that that doesn't surprise me i'm more worried about you know third-party uh uh code in, in 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 government applications because um well we've seen this with solar winds uh right. a couple years ago and um wow that to me that's one of the most terrifying uh, attack vectors is you know the breach of trust through a security vendor um you well, I mean, yeah, you got it. I mean, do you guys ever get asked that? Like, um, oh, we take it very seriously. How can we trust you guys, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, so you know, on this, um, so there's another thing that um, the, again, the government's trying to push for this, and I think industry has an appetite for it. Is uh, what they're calling a SBOM or a Software Bill of Materials. Mm -hmm. um, and think of it just like reading the ingredients of a uh, package of food. Um, you know, you want to know what's in it, and, right. and software can kind of you know be that black box of you know, functionality, um, but are, is your functionality all your own cooked code or is it third-party licensed um, components? Because if it's third parties, now if that third party has a vulnerability, you know, this allows me to say, and really a lot of this came from the log4j, you know, bomb that happened is, you know, oh crap, well, we don't really know explicitly where all of this is or like everything that has this in it. Um, and so this is a way for vendors to, software vendors to, uh be just to disclose what's inside their applications um no, it's, so, it's really important um because especially at the smb or enterprise level you think about all the different applications that any oh, given yeah. company uses right oh, and huge. You, yeah you want to have some kind of visibility into what's like you said the ingredients right yep. and if you can automate alerts related to the different ingredients that would be even and this That'd is where cool. industry is already coming to the market with with solutions. So I expect to hear more about these in the, the months to come. Awesome. Well, hey, Grayson, um, this has been a great conversation. Uh, if anybody wants to get more information about Open Tech Security Solutions or they want to reach out and connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, I would just direct them to um, uh, the Open Text website uh, or additionally webroot.com. That's uh, the company I worked for a long time beforehand. So if you're if you're curious about our uh, our solutions, then, you know that's a good place to go, and it can link you to our our backup and uh, and security awareness training uh, stuff as well. So um, yeah, that's where I would point you. Awesome, thanks a lot, Grayson. Hey, I've enjoyed the conversation, and would like to wish you and the rest of your team a great end of 2022. Awesome, Mark, this has been so much fun and uh, yeah, likewise. 
Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. 